Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. Welcome to episode 24 of the Third Hour Podcast, Crossing the Jordan. This week we're covering Joshua chapters 1 through 12. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. I'm Andrew. Amanda, you want to tell us what happens in these lovely chapters? Sure. Do you want to tell us what happens in these dark chapters? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's probably more accurate. Spoiler (laughs) alert. Lots of things happen. We are suddenly at things happening again. So (laughs) narrative again. Yeah. Yeah. Brace yourselves. We're going to be here for a while. So Moses is dead which means Joshua is in charge and he gets started with a divine lecture that he needs to be strong, courageous, and keep the law and everything will be fine. And that strong and courageous just comes up over and over again, which I thought was cute. From there, Joshua sends two spies into the land to check things over. They apparently suck at their job because the king of Jericho realizes they're there and the spies end up hiding out in the house of Rahab, a prostitute. We ask no follow-up questions about what they were doing there. Um, (laughs) She strikes a deal with the spies to hide them and then sneak them out in exchange for protecting her family when the Israelites sack the city. The spies agree, survive, and head back to camp. The Israelites then cross the River Jordan into Canaan, but to do that, Joshua sends the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the river, and the river stops flowing so everyone can cross on dry ground. Then one representative of each tribe runs a stone back out into the water around where the priests are standing to leave a memorial to the miracle. Very thorough. There's a brief pause because apparently no one has been circumcised in the last 40 years. So we do that, recover, and have Passover. And apparently we've been having manna the entire time. And that's the trigger for manna to stop appearing. Also, for some reason, Joshua sees the angelic commander of the heavenly host good for him. Then they get to Jericho, follow divine instruction to march around it for seven days blowing horns, the walls fall, and they slaughter everyone but Rahab's family. Before taking the city, the Israelites got instructions to turn over all silver, gold, bronze, and iron into the Lord's treasury, but a fellow named doesn't do that. He doesn't deserve correct pronunciation. (laughs) Well, spoilers, because his keeping of stuff means that when the Israelites go up against their next enemy, they lose. Joshua tries to play to the Lord's vanity like Moses did, but the Lord is all, oh, no, no, no. You guys broke the bargain by taking stuff. So Joshua goes through every tribe and clan and family until he finds Khan who confesses. And in a totally just and fair punishment, Khan is stoned to death and his entire family is burned alive. Now that they're good again, the Israelites lure the people from that other city back out, then ambush the remainder and light everything on fire. Interestingly, they're only allowed livestock as loot this time, not silver and gold. From there, Joshua makes an altar, sacrifices to the Lord, and reads the law out loud from cover to cover. That's mean. It's a mean thing to do. To him. <laughs> from there... Isn't that what we've been doing to our listeners? <laughs> yes, but not out loud and not all in one sitting. I wish you were stoned. <laughs> Maybe. So from there, the people of the city of Gibeon pretend to be travelers from far away and make a deal with the Israelites for peace. The Israelites are ticked about getting tricked, but keep the bargain. The other local king, other local kings are irritated and attack Gibeon, Joshua honors the treaty and defends the city. And then this is that story where he asks God to stop the sun and the moon in the sky, and I'm not quite sure what competitive advantage that gave them, but cool. Um, And then we end up on a list of places that Joshua took by the sword, all in various degrees of detail. Impressions. What 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 did you think of Joshua? Sure is punchy. Both proverbially and literally. <laughs> well, and it was interesting because like, throughout the whole of Deuteronomy, it was like, I don't know any of these. 
none of this. I don't remember any of this. And this was like, oh, I know that story. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that one. That we had reached another point where it's like, oh, I know that story. And it is it is bookended by murder once again. Yeah, it's amazing how often that's the case. My impression came from, so I got a new version of the Bible this week. The Jewish study Bible. Oh, wow. And the, it has multiple pages of notes, listeners. It was such a fun week. Yeah. He's <laughs> the, looks real stoked. So it not had, nervous at all. <laughs> it's true. I usually get excited about things that make you deeply uncomfortable. So Yay. we'll see how that goes. Yay. So this, what I loved about this new version is it had a way more complete introduction to Joshua and some of the books that come after. And I think the most helpful thing I learned from it, we've kind of been talking about all this time, but no one had ever like said, I needed to be slapped in the face with it. The Torah and the prophets developed simultaneously. Yes. Uh-huh. I know we've kind of been talking, but like I somehow hadn't put together that like Isaiah isn't like reading Deuteronomy and commenting on it. Like it's happening at the same time. Right. Yeah, yeah he's helping write it. Yeah. They're in dialogue with each other. Yeah. That like completely changes. <laughs> the whole hebrew bible yeah so if you're like me listeners and you're really dense and you haven't picked that up yet like i I, anyway well parts of it anyway yeah deuteronomy we've talked yeah deuteronomy for sure and we've talked about how all through the torah there's different time periods at which we think different things are coming from and yeah but i love thinking about all these things as being in dialogue. And then I love the idea of like Jesus coming along and taking sides. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification, (laughs) (laughs) but I was noticing like, if you look at like Mark, the citations of the old Testament, Mark, almost all the ones that come from like the Deuteronomist are being quoted at Jesus. Mm -hmm. And generally Jesus responds with a different part of the Hebrew Bible, like one of the prophets. And it just, it, it makes some of those dialogues make more sense. There's this ongoing argument about what their own history means and what to make of it religiously. And um, somehow that just like came home for me that this is just part of that discussion and that Jesus is going to be part of that discussion and we can be part of that discussion. And in that dialogue, the reason this was meaningful to me this week and the reason it fits in with my impression is that Honestly, I've had a hard time like seeing God anywhere in the scriptures so far. <laughs> Word. And I feel like I can start to glimpse God a little bit in that wrestle, in that dialogue, in that effort to create something better than any one of these arguments is by themselves. <clears throat> God is more subtle there. God isn't occupying the like simple narrative that we like to have of like talk to the prophet and tell everybody what to do. But I, in my own life, this is how God works. Somehow in the wrestle, God helps good things to emerge. I have this faith that good comes out of the wrestle. And anyway, the, thinking of this as a dialogue has opened up just a smidgen of space for me to see God in some of these parts of the dialogue that I hate. <laughs> or at least, in what, at least in what comes out of the integration of all of those things, I guess, is maybe more accurate. Yeah. That's my very long impression. I gave mine already. Oh. I I don't know if this is an impression. Maybe this is something, Taylor, now that you've uh, learned about (laughs) the Deuteronomy. (laughs) Maybe this is something that you could introduce. Because I think that now that we've reached this point, you know, we're out of the Torah and we're into the Nevi'im, maybe it's a good time to give our listeners uh, some grounding. Like, where are we in the biblical landscape? And maybe... Maybe you want to do that. I can, I can try, but I just learned it this week. <laughs> <laughs> he can here's what I, here's what I introduction from his Bible. Oh, it's too long to read. The, the introduction by Mark Brettler, though, is fantastic. I, I, I honestly, if you're curious, just for a, a primer, it's a, it's a really great, not super long, but really great intro. And if I can find in my notes. Oh, yeah. And, so, and, and just so anyone who, who's curious, so that translation, the Jewish study, study Bible, is actually, I think, one of the best if you want to study the Old Testament from more of a Jewish standpoint. 
Um, so even the, even what we're reading is basically the Hebrew Bible from a Christian standpoint. And so it's, it's, it's very useful if you want sort of that other perspective. That's not to say the NRSV is not. It's just we've seen tons of places where it sort of rounds in the direction of Christianity, right? Where, oh, it's going to say things that sound a little like atonement-based and they're about sin and, and stuff like that instead of looking at what maybe a Hebrew person would have been thinking about uh, some of these salvific concepts. So it's a great, great book. And I'm really enjoying it. So far, I'm very happy with it. So I think what's most important to know is that a lot of scholars, I think there's actually quite a bit of consensus that the Deuteronomist, we're still in the Deuteronomist. So Joshua, and it's been proposed that Joshua judges and both Samuels and both Kings are all one big work, either by one author or a school of authors. Um, there's some debate, and the debate that was brought up in the in the thing I was watching was with Elijah and Elisha, since they sacrifice out in the hills. So that's a problem for the Deuteronomist. Obviously, we see that we know the Deuteronomist is really concerned with the central sanctuary, but um, overall, it seems like these books, Joshua, so Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, are unified by certain themes, including mostly the, the worship in the central sanctuary, and so it's been proposed that they're all from the same writer or school of thought writer. That's about all I have to offer. Did you uh, want to add anything else? No, that's good. Many people, many scholars now will refer to the books of Moses a little bit differently than they used to. So you may recognize the term Pentateuch, right? The five books. Many people often refer to it now as the Tetratuch, that the four books of Moses plus the Deuteronomist. Deuteronomist. Yeah. And it's easier to think of, if you want to think about this historically, it is actually easier to think of Deuteronomy instead of being the last five of the five books of so-called Moses, that it is the first book of the Deuteronomist history. That it's the introduction. Yeah. And it's the introduction to the mindset, to the rules, to some of the themes. Like, Going through this, you might have noticed that the themes we talked about in Deuteronomy are basically the same. Like you're kind of looking for five features, right? And and we've said them before. Maybe it's useful to say them again. One, centralize the cult in Jerusalem, specifically Jerusalem. Two, Yahwism, uh, getting rid of the rest of the Canaanite cults. Three, obedience to Allah. And kind of going along with that, you have this, uh, I would say, four is this like historical causality that Israel is a special people, that history is A, B, C, D. It's explaining history. It's not very good history by our standards because it's not really trying to be good history. It's trying to explain history. Um, and part of that is the separation from Canaan. And then five, you remember, we only saw this in Deuteronomy and nowhere else, kingship. Hmm. This idea that, well, what are they supposed to be unified under? Well, they're not a loose tribal confederation. They are now heading toward the David's kingdom. And so that's, they're justifying that. So, so you'll notice that all five of those points come up here. They all came up in Deuteronomy and they're just going to keep coming up. And basically through, uh, like Taylor said, Samuel and Kings, and then kind of fizzle out, kind of disappear. They won't be quite as important anymore. And if my understanding is correct, we date, we part of our guess on the dating of the Deuteronomist is when it fizzles out. The kind of yeah. the last events that are recorded there it has to have been after those. Yeah, and and that's one reason why we don't say it's an author. There is material here that clearly predates the monarchy, um, but there's also a lot of material that's clearly being written as monarchy propaganda and exile propaganda to explain well if we're God's chosen people, how did we end up in exile, and what can we do about that. So it seems like one school, but that doesn't mean even within this one author, we, again, don't presume univocality, that it's yeah. one mindset. It seems like there was dialogue going on, that there were debates about what should be preserved. Sometimes things were preserved in tension, which probably indicates more than one author that, you know, so-and-so wanted to cut out this passage, but some other scribe argued hard enough to keep it in. Um, very common today in scribal work, let alone back then. Um, so be on the lookout for all of that stuff. And it's really exciting. And it, and it puts a lot of things into very stark contrast, um, especially when you think about it like a school, because we're going to notice that everything in Joshua 
is effectively contradicted by judges, at least narratively, right? Like this idea of like an organized confederation of Israel coming in and wiping out all these cities. Well, even textually, all the, most of those cities appear in judges as Canaanite held cities. And instead of a big holy war, it's like guerrilla warfare between two sides. And okay, well, so the text directly is in tension with a later book. They say they conquer all these places. And then later, like they talk about defeating the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem isn't actually conquered until the time of David, two centuries later. So, uh, and it, the the Bible says that. That's not archaeology. So very exciting things to see this intention. And what does that mean? I hope we get into that. Anyway, sorry. Of course out. we're going to get into that. Sorry, now I'm just nerding out. But uh, <laughs> but it is. It's exciting. Well, it is to nerds. <laughs> She's <laughs> sitting away. at us. No. All right. Is it, is, this seemed like a good place to me, too, to just really briefly uh, review what the archaeology has to say about the coming forth of Israel. And I, I didn't have in mind, like, we went through all three... You can go back to our earlier episode where we talk about that. But just kind of in general, there's this archaeology argues for, you know, there's some kind of turmoil, either people coming from the sea or something else causing a turmoil that sort of is leading to social unrest that leads to some kind of slow emergence of this people, Israel. And they seem to kind of spread from town to town, move maybe out of the hills. And we talked about you know, we start to see their settlements because they don't have pig bones. But at least to me, the broad strokes that that I think are maybe worth keeping in mind is that there is a little bit of evidence in this time period of, of violence and conquering cities, but it's only like scattered cities here and there. There isn't evidence of this kind of mass invasion that we see in Joshua. So here's something that many people can take comfort from. All of this bloodletting, that seems uh, that God wanted to have happen. It didn't occur. That's good. Why did they tell the story this way? That's kind of the big question, right? So Taylor brings up violence. So there's a lot of evidence that violence had occurred in the region uh, a couple of centuries earlier. Uh, like Jericho is going to be our big example. So Jericho is an important town, important city at one time, because it sits uh, at a crossroads of fords places where you can actually cross these rivers. And so traveling between the east and the west side of the Jordan, uh, it, it acts as a portal or a port town between the lowlands and the highlands. Well, very, so a lot of things are going to travel through it. Well, earlier, um, before the 13th century BCE, which is when this story is supposed to take place, bef sometime before that, it was a city. And in fact, it's one of the world's oldest cities. And it was involved in what we would call the Bronze Age collapse, which is there's these big networks of trade and culture, and they break down. No one's quite sure of the reason. There seem to be a lot of reasons, volcanic eruption, the Sea Peoples, the Trojan Wars, the, you know, Mycenaean civilization is collapsing. All sorts of things are happening. Well, whatever happens, there, there are mass migrations and certain big empires that are nearby collapse. And so there is violence. But it's a couple of centuries earlier that Jericho is a big city. And by the time of the 13th century, it's reduced. It's just a village. It has no walls. Um, and so the story can't really happen as told, nor really can it even happen as told textually. Uh, the house of Rahab being in between, in, built into the wall, and then the walls fall down, and then her house is still standing medieval commentators were always trying to like, well, maybe only some of the wall fell down. And so, so just, just know that there's no evidence for almost any of this. And that can really cause uh, some people who are looking at this literally, literally to have a struggle. It's better to think of it in terms of a different form of history, um, that this is not a history that's actually trying to tell you what happened. It's trying to explain meanings. Yeah why things are the way they are, why they must be a certain way, why you should submit to them being a certain way, etc. Yeah. And there's little keys in here. Uh, one of the best ones is, and it's still that way today. Mm -hmm. And well, they'll, they'll say like Rahab and her family still dwells among the Israelites. It, it says, and she still dwells among the Israelites, which we assume means her family because she's ostensibly not, you know, 
300 years yeah, old. Yeah, or three centuries old. <laughs> but, but anytime you see that little phrase, it's signaling to you that whoever the author is, they're trying to explain to you, a contemporary of this text reader, um, that some explanation for why the world is the way you're observing the world. And that gets really hard for us because, of course, what they're explaining is meant for a contemporary audience which is totally different from us because many of those things aren't there anymore. So we'll, we'll call those out as we go through. Um, but we get a lot of hints about what the concerns of the author were from that little flag that's in the text. So hopefully we'll get into that. Thank you for bailing me out there, by the way. That was a much more helpful explanation. The collapse of the Bronze Age, that, that, that's the linchpin. All right, so we start with the commissioning of Joshua. We've kind of done this in Deuteronomy. Actually, I think it's really helpful, by the way, to read Joshua with Deuter- thinking of Deuteronomy as the introduction. It just, it flows. It helps the themes tie together. That helped me a lot. When um, it's meant to, right? Right. Like, so it, Deuteronomy ends with Moses dies. This begins with Moses dies. Right. It's meant to be connected. So that's, I'm glad they put that in. <laughs> really tied it together. Well, and it, it, it gets, I mean, when you talked about the sacrifice that they do at Shechem, we'll get there, but that's directly fulfilling something in Deuteronomy. I mean, it's clearly pointing back throughout. So Joshua gets his commission. We have some of our uh, gems that we like to pick out here. I charge you be strong and resolute. That's how it's translated in mine. Mm -hmm. Um, Do not be terrified or dismayed. This is chapter one, verse nine for the Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, So then Joshua gives orders calls the people together and it kind of bookends with the people sort of saying back to Joshua verse 16, we will do everything you have commanded us and we will go wherever you send us. We will obey you just as we obeyed Moses. Let, but the Lord, your God be with you as he was with Moses. Um, Any man who flouts your commands and does not obey every order you give him shall be put to death. Only be strong and resolute. So it has this nice, we've seen this structure before it bookends it. Um, God calling Joshua on the one hand, the people sort of acknowledging and calling Joshua, or excuse me, acknowledging that call and and calling Joshua in return on the other side. We get our first hint that this is actually utopian fiction uh, in this chapter. What we mean when we say that is that this is writing about an ideal. Yeah. It will never be attained. Like when we write about a utopia, right, you know, you're not going to make it a utopia. You're kind of putting ideas out there, right? Uh We get that here. So just in uh, verse four, when it gives the boundaries um, for from the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, that's the, and it clarifies the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the West. That's the Mediterranean. These boundaries were never realized at any point in Israel, Israel's history. So why are they included here? Well, it's probably even signaling to a contemporary reader that this is utopian fiction huh. to some degree. Certainly, if you were in the priestly class, you would know where the Euphrates is and that Israel's boundaries never reached the Euphrates, nor did they ever have the military capacity to reach the Euphrates. They would have had to defeat Persia, which is not happening. Um, (laughs) That's up to Alexander the Great. That's 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 someone else who will do that. And um, so. So right away, it gives us an impossible bound. And what are we supposed to do with that? If you're a reader who's reading this in the time period, and it says this impossible thing, well, I think actually we have a great example because as people in the Mormon tradition, we have all sorts of utopian scripture that has never been recognized. And, you know, this idea of building Zion, what Zion will look like, where it will be geographically, all sorts of things that have never actually been realized. And what do we do with those? Do we, some people I think who are maybe a little more uh, fabulous in their thinking are like, well, maybe in the future, maybe in the future, that's what it will be. And some other people are, well, maybe it's a metaphor. And there are different ways of looking at that, but either way you have to accept that it's an ideal form uh, it's it's looking at sort of this this idea of possibility as opposed to the actual. Um, so that's the first signal we have. Pretty cool. So Taylor, remind me of the list of stuff believed to be written by the Deuteronomist. Joshua judges the two Samuels and the two Kings. But earlier, you guys were talking about judges and how judges makes its like basically covers the warfare and makes it sound more guerrilla-esque. Yes? Yes. 
why the contrast if written by the same like if you've already got your like utopianized history why do it again in a dystopian (laughs) judges is pretty dystopian judges is not great (laughs) well and like is would judges be more historically accurate or is it just so so uh, yes let's let's put it this way this that's an excellent question so i have two answers they're both kind of brief and but they overlap a lot the first is is again we can't think of this as one author Mm -hmm. or even that that it's a school of authors over multiple centuries and sometimes they disagree even though they're in the same school conceptually. Oh, so multiple, I was envisioning this is over multiple decades. This is multiple centuries. Yeah. So we get the sense that some of this is undertaken in the, near the end of the monarchy, right? Because Deuteronomy, remember the story is that a king finds it in a temple and it's, yeah, Yeah. and it's promoted and it's likely the the landed aristocracy and intellectuals who are promoting it. Yeah. There's a lot of intellectualism in, in D but not really much cultic concern. It, it's it's not like Leviticus. It doesn't care about the actual particulars. It can it's concerned with control of the cult. Yeah. So it starts there, but it also seems to take place over that century, then the century of the exile, and then in the century following the exile. So it's likely written over two to three centuries, um, in which concerns are changing. My second answer is that a really good way to think about this is think about if it's being written. Um, many centuries after these events occurred, the farther back it goes, the more mythological it gets, Yeah, the more idealized the history, uh, in part probably because they had access to less history, which is just sort of a truism of, mm-hmm. of history making, yeah. that the farther back you go, you run out of evidence because it's been walked over and thrown away. And mm-hmm. when we get back to like a, this loose tribal confederacy, well, you can massage that history a lot more. So keep that in mind that you can kind of almost look at it like a funnel, right? That there's not so much they can change recently. And so God kind of disappears from the narrative. The protagonists, despite being great, have big flaws. But as it goes back, the protagonists become more idealized. God is always present. Even shades of polytheism are in there in weird places (laughs) before being wiped away. Like the commander of God's army shows up, but the next chapter, God himself is out there kicking butt. So why did he need a commander of an army? Mm-hmm. And he never shows up again. It's like, it reminded me of that. It reminded me of the, the angel that shows up in is it Exodus. There's yeah. that like random encounter yeah. with. So God's like, this angel's going to attend your camp. Yeah. Oh, well that never comes up again. Yeah. yeah. I love what you're saying, Andrew. And it actually, it really resonates with kind of what I was trying to share with the impression too, that this sense that as you get closer to yourself, you don't know where to fill God in anymore. There's all these problems that you have to figure out how to deal with. And the further away you get with looser facts, you just you use God to fill in the gaps. And you get these stories of this like almighty ever intervening God that just don't, I don't know, maybe your life is different than mine. <laughs> but like, I have to look really hard. Like my, the handful of experiences I would consider like important spiritual experiences I've had. There's only a few like God's role in those tends to be really subtle and difficult to like pin down. And anyway, so I think it's interesting that you can see that happening in this history where the closer it gets to the messy reality that they're actually part of, the harder it gets for them to know how to put it all together. Yeah. And yet you still see them creating doing their darndest to put it together in the way that's that, you know, makes God out to yeah. be the version of God that they believe in. All right. So where were we? Chapter two. Spies. Rahab. See. This is a story I feel like everybody kind of knows. Did you know that Rahab was a prostitute? Yes. Yeah. It's become popular in uh, Christian tradition to say, well, actually she was an innkeeper. That is inaccurate. The word she is introduced with is woman whore. Does that mean that there is a word that translates to man whore? Absolutely. I love it. I don't know why like she has become like the target of Christian whitewashing. Oh, you know why? Well, but, but it's weird because like no one's defending Tamar. 
because we like to say that Tamar wasn't really a prostitute. It was just circumstantial. <laughs> she just pretended to be. That's true. Yeah. And this, but she's not especially virtuous. She effectively parlays her situation into better standing. Yeah. And like gives away her people. Well, and, and she's being shrewd. Like yeah. this is a celebration of shrewdness, mm. not necessarily like virtue. Yeah. Well, like either way she wins. If they don't take the city, no one knows. If they do take the city, her family lives. So yeah, it is a good celebration of shrewdness. Yeah. yeah. There's also, some have pointed out, there's probably two narratives being woven together here. Because if you if you were just going to make a city's walls fall down, why would you need to send spies? Mm-hmm. That that speaks to a conventional military operation. Mm-hmm. You'd think they'd just go and like, okay, sound the trumpets, walls fall down, we we win. Um, so so very likely we're seeing some sort of doublet there that there might be two stories about or contrasting stories about how this should happen. But the one with the good song is the story we tell. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 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 I noticed too a theme throughout here is this sense of like the terror that like the just the the proof. Um, the chapter ends this way: the Lord, the spies say to Joshua, the Lord has delivered the whole land into our power. In fact, all the inhabitants of the land are quaking before us. So there's this constant sense of like signs for the Israelites that they're going to win, signs for the Canaanites that they're going to lose. Well, like you have no other option. Like how last time you came back and you were nervous, so you were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. So like your only option is to be like, yep, great. It's a good idea. It's a good plan. Let's do it. I don't want to go back. (laughs) I want a city. (laughs) Yeah. So then now they know what they're doing. They cross the Jordan. We have the miraculous crossing of the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant. I wanted to ask about this part, Andrew. So we talked a little bit earlier about the Sea of Reeds, and that's another thing I appreciate about the Jewish Study Bible is it actually translates it that way. Oh, cool. Um, Oh, that you don't need the footnote that says, or, because mine still says Red Sea, and then there's a footnote that says, or Sea of Reeds. Yeah, this one actually just translates it Sea of Reeds. But this clearly, this version of the crossing of the Jordan has the sort of sense of the, you know, the piling up of the waters, like the traditional version of the crossing of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. So w- would, would, would we agree that it's that this tradition of like that parting of an ocean uh, doesn't just start in modern times. It's already seems to be entrenched by the time of Deuteronomist. Is that fair? Yeah. So it, it so that, that idea of the parting of the Red Sea is not modern. Yeah. It's not medieval. It is ancient. Yeah. It's just not super ancient. Yeah. Um, when we talk about antiquity, it covers thousands of years. <laughs> so, so certainly by when the people are writing, remember, we're trying to pick out like what, why, why is the hero of this story an Egyptian? And why, why are these people casting themselves as escaped slaves? Well, it, if we're using the criterion of embarrassment, it seems like there's something real going on there. Yeah. What is that real thing? Well, even early rabbis suspected that Moses had not parted the Red Sea. That doesn't mean that all rabbis agreed with that or that all rabbis agree today with yeah. that. Yeah. So they cross the Jordan River miraculously. They do the, the memorial, as we talked about. And there, I think this is one of the places we have that tell. Yeah, that these, these uh, standing stones are still there to this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and and scholars and rabbis have debated this for a long time because um, whatever it is isn't there today. Um, I think that the suspicion is is that it's repurposing something, that this might have been a ring of cultic steles. um, And it's explaining that, oh, they're actually there because of Joshua and not because like an Asherah cult had put them up as Asherim, as Asherah poles. Kind of like with everything, like with Christianity, there was so much repurposing of older, what we would call pagan sites into this tradition. So so I think that's kind of the leading theory is that there may have been, I mean, you see them all over the place, like Stonehenge, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a ring of steles. It's not there today. But the number of times they return to it seems to indicate a cultic site. Yeah. Well, and, and they very explicitly repurpose it. So at the end of chapter four, 
in the time to come when your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of those stones? Tell your children, here the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry land for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan before you until you crossed just as the Lord your God did to the Sea of Reeds, which he dried up before us until we crossed. Um, thus all the peoples of the earth shall know how mighty is the hand of the Lord and you shall fear the Lord your God always. And of course that Lord there is a reference to Jehovah. So it's it's a clear, clear repurposing of these to, to indicate a Yahweh cult. Yeah. I noticed you skipped chapter five in, in your uh, summary. We you didn't mention the hill of foreskins. Um, <laughs> I was yes, I did. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, I must have zoned out. <laughs> My bad. Men's brains turn off when you mention a hill of foreskins. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> so that's how chapter five starts out. We need to be recircumcised, and, and it's it says it's a second circumcision of the Israelites, but then it goes on to clarify that. These are people who had come out of Egypt later, like when they were too young. So like verse four, the people who are military age had all died. Um, so none of these people who were born after the Exodus had been circumcised, apparently. Yeah. So we have mass circumcision. The author also tries to make it sound more archaic than it is. Because so this is being written in the Iron Age about something that they claim happened in the Bronze Age. So the sharpest knife you would get would be bronze, right? So, but instead they're like, and they took a flint knife and started chopping off foreskins. They're probably trying to make it sound older because, because as authors are like, well, what did people do in the olden days? Well, they used like rocks. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I would know. I don't know enough about materials to like immediately recognize that bronze would be better than flint, but that's flint is a rock, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. I would That's rather, actually really fun. That's actually a really I, fun detail. I would rather be circumcised with bronze than flint, personally. <laughs> yeah, definitely me too. Let's get that knife as sharp as possible, please. <laughs> Anyone got some tungsten? <laughs> so uh, then we celebrate a Passover. Manna stops. And we meet the captain of the Lord's house. I don't really have anything else to add about that. Is there anything either of you wanted to say? Sure is random, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It's just like brief random things one right at it makes it hard to outline. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just list all of them. Yeah. <laughs> well at least we dropped the random crap all together in one spot. Yeah, that's true. And it wasn't like those chunks of Deuteronomy, where my poor scriptures just kept being miscellaneous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is miscellaneous for a couple chapters. Um, I did notice again. I mean, just the callbacks to Moses are so often they feel pretty obvious. You know, verse fifteen, the captain of the Lord's host answered Joshua, "Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy." And Joshua did so. I mean, there's just this very obvious yep. marketing back to Moses. Yep, you're in a holy place. Yeah. All right, then we get to Jericho. Uh, and again, I feel like this is another one where we really know the story. <laughs> like I need to, or at least we know, we know the song version of the story. <laughs> Except um, for me, apparently. <laughs> How do you not know Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? Sing the whole thing for me. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. It's the one time where the uh, tabernacle at <laughs> Temple Square has to have rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had no Fair idea. Enough. Never heard this thing. Probably have. I don't know. You probably. I bet if we actually played it, you'd, rec- you'd at least have heard it once. So they walk around the walls once a day for seven, day- six days, and then seven times in one day. Blowing horns. Blowing horns, yelling. The walls come down. They commit genocide. They spare Rahab. There's an anachronism. Oh yeah, yeah. In uh, verse 24, the silver and gold and objects of copper and iron were deposited in the treasury of the house of the Lord. Hmm. There's no temple yet. Hmm. Awkward. Yeah, that's the awkward part. <laughs> yeah, not the harem. Yeah. So you want to talk about that word a little bit? Actually, that's probably worth it. Yeah, I mean, so the harem is the ban. That's often how it's rendered. Uh, In your King James, I think they just say, like, committed to the destruction of the Lord, which that's a euphemism. (laughs) It it basically means that's the tribute to God. So just like you would burn uh, an offering and it becomes a pleasing odor to God somehow in its vaporization, 
Same thing happens here. If something, if God says that something is now to be devoted to him, it is destroyed and the process of its destruction gives it to God. Well, in this case, God has said that all of the Canaanites and their possessions are his. So they are under the ban or the harem. And uh, so they get to be destroyed. Lucky them that they belong to God. And uh, so, yeah, that's what's happening here. I think it does help. It does help elucidate the next story, though, with this Akon, Akon, I don't know how to say his name, guy. So he steals from the Cherem. How was that? That was good. All right. I mean, no you one's would, here. You would have said that no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> no one here is going to get mad. No one, no one here went to Hebrew school. So. And the result is this loss uh, to this other group in I, A, I. Yeah. They don't send all their troops. They just send a few thousand. The spies come out like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Send a few thousand. They get routed. And again, this harkened back to Moses. We get like this Josh, this sort of interchange between Joshua and God. Um, why did you bring me here? This sort of moping. We should have just stayed on the other side of Jordan. The, you know, what will you do about your great name? So we're back to <laughs> appealing to God's vanity. And God's like, Get up, you whiner. It's your fault. Somebody stole from my cherem. Mm-hmm. And so they cast lots to find out who it was. I mean, and I just, again, like the the way that the will of God is manifest through randomness, like lots. Yeah. So, so remember, this is probably the Urim and Thummim, which are likely a binary yes-no dice mm. that would be rolled. So in this case, uh, and if you look at the ancient world, dice and other divination tools were used all the time, even in gambling. You sit down to gamble. Well, whoever God wants to win will win. Yeah. So their dice aren't even balanced in this time period. Like they're all lopsided and stuff. <laughs> because then if you get a rare roll that was like weighted poorly, well, God really wanted you to have that roll. <laughs> and the reason I actually, the reason I highlighted it is because I, I, it's always so tempting to like laugh at the ancient people, but we totally do this today. We don't use dice. Although I do know people who, who would believe that dice fall according to God's will. But like we, we look at random things that happen in the world and we ascribe the hand of God to them and say that person was meant to die or that person was meant to be in this position or that person, you know, I didn't get this job. That means God didn't want me to have this job. Like, I I feel like this ascribing of God's will to randomness uh, is something we totally do today. And I appreciate how unapologetic the Bible is about it. Because I think it calls attention to it. You know, even people who aren't superstitious do it to an extent, especially dice are such a great example. So I play a lot of board games. And one thing that's super fun is that we do roll a lot of actual physical dice. Well, if we roll dice and we're, let's say we're rolling for high numbers. So fives and sixes, we roll a bunch of dice that are low. The next time somebody needs to roll the way, take those away. I'm not rolling those dice, (laughs) even though mathematically there's nothing that would make those, but in your head, you're like, well, maybe they're weighted so that they come up poorly, which ignores the fact the way dice are made with high numbers on one side, opposite low numbers, so that they're actually balanced. So they will not roll poorly, but, but we get it into our heads, these, these weird superstitions, even though we don't attach them to the fates or to gods or anything, we still think that there's some sort of will or bending of probability when there isn't. Yeah. So the lots reveal Aachen, who, as Amanda has already told us, is stoned, and then a bunch of people are burned. I guess his punishment for stealing from the Cherem is to be thrown into the Cherem. So don't be frightened, Joshua. Go back to I now that you've fixed the problem. And this time uh, they don't take it lightly. They take it by stratagem. This is this made me think of uh, certain part of the Book of Mormon that uses this exact same strategy. Then it works. They lure them out, get them surrounded, take the city. So they, they beat I, AI. I don't know how to say this. They beat the artificial intelligence. (laughs) 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 Once again, everyone's coming to the Jerem. You appreciate that. We've ventured into euphemism already. I don't know how to not do it. They're murdered. Everybody's everybody's killed. Everybody's murdered. <laughs> That's fair. Maybe we should say it that way. 
Everybody is made and gift to God. Yeah, in some ways, I actually think Kevim is worse because if you know what it means, because it's not just murdering, it's murdering as sanct- as m- making them a sacrifice to God. They're all sacrificed to They're God. They're all sacrificed yeah. to God. Because yeah. I have to stop and translate the Chavim yeah. in my head. Yeah. And there's just something about that little extra st- mental step that makes it a little less terrible and then it's like oh no should be terrible yeah yeah fair enough i I think it's a valid point actually Mm. yeah it is really violent verse 29 joshua had the corpse um impaled on a stake until the evening then he took it down and they put a great heap of stones over it which is there to this day do we have any idea what that heap of stones is or is that just another uh well that's hard so probably there was a heap of stones um it's not there today yeah, well, it's fascinating to me, too. I mean, the more I read this, the less I want it to be literal. <laughs> and and also, as we've pointed out, I mean, the, the, the text itself arguing with itself, and we'll get to judges, but um, it's, it's fascinating to me that a text that is so unapologetic about including contradiction and different voices can be so constantly shoved into an attempt to make it univocal. Um, just I, I'm I'm more fascinated by that all the time, just because of how unapologetic the text is about not being univocal. Yeah, but just the text. Forget about archaeology. <laughs> forget about scholarship. Just the text itself. Anyway, so the sacrifice on Mount Ebal. Uh, this is one that fulfills Deuteronomy 27. God tells Moses when they get across the Jordan, they're supposed to make a sacrifice with unhewn stones. I I wondered if that <laughs> that couplet. And I'm totally speculating here, but it feels like trying to explain away an important historical memory of some kind of sacrifice that didn't happen at the central sanctuary. Here's like a special exception. We're going to give you the spe- like a prophecy of the special exception in Deuteronomy so we can then explain that one away and not have it become precedent like so many of the other things we talk about are going to become precedent. Anyway, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that's kind of how it felt to me. Then the Israelites get duped. These this one town they're afraid we're going to get conquered so they say they they get dressed like they've been traveling a long time and they come up to the israelites we've heard about this great yahweh we want to make a bargain with you don't worry we're not on the land that yahweh gave you we come from far away so they promise not to kill them and that turns out they were canaanites yeah they owned four cities yeah so they became weavers or hewers of wood and drawers of water which is a euphemism for slaves of the Israelites, maybe? or No, it's just, it's the lowest rung, sort of. Um, like, where is it? Somewhere in Deuteronomy, it says, like, it, when it's talking about everyone included in the assembly, it says, um, to the lowest of the low, including the hewers of your wood and the drawers of your water. Hmm. So so they're, they're servants, ser- a servant class. But it seems that they are serving, it says they're serving in the sanctuary. Um, that they're even helping out in cultic practices to some extent. So this is probably an ideology. So here we've said, oh, we wiped out the Canaanites. And to if you're in a contemporary mindset and you say, well, why in this region of Israel are there non-Israelites who they even work in the temple, in the sanctuary? So what's that about? Well, here's a story about why. Yeah, Because they're Trixie. <laughs> <laughs> Which in a text that has so much respect for shrewdness, I mean, there's a theme here there it's clever yep and it's clever both in the you know the scheme of pretending to come from far away but also they 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 clearly they're shrewd in the ways in which they push the right buttons with the israelites you know the reverence for yahweh the we know you guys are going to conquer everything anyway they're they're shrewd so then in chapter 10 we get the five kings of the amorites uh, which includes one of the kings of Jerusalem, right? King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem. And they band together to try to fight the Israelites, but the Israelites rout them. The sun stands still. I understood it so that they could keep slaughtering them because huh. they were on the run. So the sun stops, the five kings flee. Uh, they hold them up in a cave. I like that. They lock them in a cave until they can get back and kill them. And then... The whole story kind of repeats itself, only with different kings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
but it's five kings again and very similar. Anything else to add with the uh, the feet of the the ten kings? I it it's lying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you already well, mentioned Jerusalem. Wait, yeah, so like... Jerusalem is Jebusite for another two centuries. It won't become Israelite until David. What was that? So that's it. Would you like to follow up on that statement? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like the Amalekites owned the Negev until David's time. Like all these places, it's naming. Uh, like what's the what's the one like Lakesh? That was never captured. So so it's just. Yeah. Yeah, Lakish. So yeah, very much an idealized story. And many of its readers may have actually understood that. Uh not everybody. Yeah. But if you were an intellectual, you probably did to some extent. Yeah. Speaking of the Negeb, um, I meant to earlier on and forgot just briefly overview the geography, actually, which was really helpful to me. So there's like three strips of geography in Israel and they're all very different. This is, I mean, this is all kind of, I've been to Israel and yet this is news to me. So the Negev refers to like down by the Dead Sea, which is on the east. So the Jordan River is on the eastern side. It's kind of the eastern boundary with the Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. Really different climates, even just between those two lakes, right? Like vegetation around the Sea of Galilee, everything's dead around the Dead Sea. Um, and then it goes up into highlands. So there's lots of like mountains and valleys, like Elijah's going to hide out in here. And so really diverse terrain here and then drops back off into the coastal plain in the West. So you have kind of the river region in the East in the middle is the highlands. And then the West is the coastal, coastal plain. plain. So where's Jerusalem in this? Where is yeah. Jerusalem? In which of these strips? That far East. Okay. So it's by the Jordan River? Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting... That's an interesting um, note that Jerusalem... Yeah. It makes sense then that here they portray Jerusalem as falling early because it has this nice linear progression in Joshua where they're like moving through conquering things. Yeah. But the fact that Jerusalem doesn't fall so much later fits better with this sort of scattershot, slow tribal thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, keep in mind that the the theory that modern historians have is is kind of this just very gradual integration. Yeah, that what you probably have is that the Yahweh cult probably came out of that middle highland, and then spread downward in both directions, but that it wasn't like a nice laminar expansion, right? It didn't just smoothly like all the cities in one place went, and then all the others. That this was negotiated, and some may have been half Israelite, but still worshiping the court of Yahweh as well. And others were more Yahwistic in the sense of the Yahwist cult, where yeah. only Yahweh exists. Um, and all of this has happened by the time we're writing Deuteronomy, which is part of the reason why we're focusing on centralizing things. Yeah, and so it's probably happened. It's probably been so long that there really aren't any Canaanites anymore, except for those small enclaves. Like, so that, that story that Taylor told about the Gibeonites, that's probably explaining why they're right next to Jerusalem, there's this cluster of four cities that are enclave cities for this non-Israelite population. And you're going, well, this says kill all the Canaanites. Well, what about them? And what about, uh, so, and what about these people who say they're from Rahab? And what about this group and this group? Each of those will kind of get their own little ideological fable. Um, but those fables you'll notice are also a little bit xenophobic. They're, they're there to, yes, these people can live among us. They serve some function to our culture, but they're still not as important as us. Mm -hmm. They were tricksy. That's how they got in. It's not that they were allied with us. I mean, the reality is if there ever was a period of organized conflict, that probably some groups allied with the Yahwist cult and some didn't. And the ones who did ally with them didn't get exterminated. And that's why they're around later. But they can't tell that story that well, our group never could have won the war without them. So we're going to rewrite the history so that they still get a place in our land. But the reason they did is because they came and tricked us. 
um, into a covenant. And we, and we, in our beneficence, allowed them, even though mm-hmm. we, di- we very soon discovered, because we are shrewd, we discovered the deception almost immediately, but we decided to let them live. And so it casts history in a particular way. We do this today. Uh, yeah. History of replacement of Native Americans. Um, the, way, the way that we talk about them getting wiped out. For example, Cortez did not wipe out the entirety of an empire on his own. Uh, you, you may have heard the story that Cortez and 200 people overthrow the entirety of the great empire of the Aztecs. Nope, didn't happen. He had tens of thousands of Tlaxcalan allies. He would not have been able to overthrow a city that was bigger than London <laughs> with 200 people, even with gunpowder. Yeah. He required the something like 16,000 Tlaxcalan army soldiers who came in and they were almost as big as the army of the Aztecs who aided him. But do you get, do you ever hear about that part of the story? Well, not unless you really dig into it. And why is that? Well, pull off the hood. It's white supremacy again. (laughs) Same kind of thing is probably going on here. Yeah. That, that a real story is being rounded off in lieu of a story that makes even your allies who are now subordinate to you seem weaker than they were when they became your allies. Thinking about it this way is one of the ways that I'm starting to be able to find God again in the Hebrew Bible, actually, because here I feel like we have the Deuteronomous view of what it means to be God's people. And and their view is xenophobic. Yeah, <laughs> And it's not that I see God in that view. It's that I see here are people really trying to wrestle with what does it mean to be God's people? How do we explain these issues in our history? If we're God's people, if we start with that assumption that we're God's people, how do we explain all of this stuff? And when you put that, and we haven't had a chance to do this yet, but when you put that in dialogue with Ruth and you put that in dialogue with some of the prophets, I think you see a very different vision of what it means to be God's people and what sacrifice means and what covenant means. And I'm, I'm really excited to put that in dialogue, but I, I think it will be more useful if we've dealt with what I think, I think, I think xenophobic is the right word. This, this view of covenant relationship with God is deeply xenophobic. And I think that's why we get murder for sacrifice for God. And, and like Andrew said, this sort of other people are here because they're serving some purpose or by some accident, but it's not because they matter like we do. Yeah. Um, Their purpose is, to be burned as sacrifice. Yeah. Or in this case, to be hewers of wood and drawers of water because they happen to be clever and we're beneficent. But eventually we're going to see pushback on this. And and I think it'll be, I think finding God in that dialogue, we have that dialogue today. What does it mean to be God's people today? We do this today. And I think, anyway, I think it's very instructive. Uh Uh, we have one more conquest to do before we round out this episode. We're defeating, defeating Jobin and company. So I wrote defeat of Jobin and company. I was getting sick of all the defeats, I think, by this <laughs> point of the outline. So once again, it's kind of similar. A bunch of kings try to band together. And again, the Lord says, don't be afraid of them. At this time, I will have them all lying slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. That's verse 6. And so it happens. Thus, in verse 23, thus Joshua conquered the whole country just as the Lord had promised Moses and Joshua signed it to Israel to share according to their tribal divisions and the land had rest from war. So we're apparently done with the conquest now. We get some summary in in the second half of chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, we get this list of the kings that were conquered. It's a long list. 31 total kings. Don't worry, he didn't count. It says that in the last verse of chapter 12. So yeah. 31 kings and all. That's all I have. You guys want to add anything else? It reads like a middle school boy, like <laughs> saying how many people he's beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> I've beaten up 31 bullies. Which is not terribly uncommon at the time, right? Like, so I was, I saw going the other way in 700 BC, they found a, was it seven? Oh, I don't have a date here, actually. I lied about the 700 BC part. But they found uh, written by King Mesha of Moab. Yeah, the Mesha Stele. And the God said <laughs> to me, go take Nebo from Israel, slaying all 7,000 men, women, boys, and children. And then it listed all 7,000. Uh, it goes on. I didn't, 
I didn't catch all of it because yeah, it I was listening to a lecture. I couldn't write it fast. Yeah, the, the Mesha Stele, but, which is a really cool discovery, is one of the first contemporaneous mentions of Israel. Um, it's you've eight, talked about it before. Yeah, 840 BCE. Um, and yeah, clearly Israel, uh, the Jewish people are still around. So uh, Mesha did not, in fact, totally wipe them out. <laughs> <laughs> so this is very common. Uh, it isn't without precedent. The difference is nobody reads the Mesha Stele and thinks it's scripture. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was struck by the similarity of the wording, though. And the God said to me, go take Nebo from Israel, slaying all 7,000 men, women, boys, and children. Yeah. It's just very, it's, hmm, I think I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, the ban, the harem, is not unique. Yeah. It appears in other Canaanite cultures. Um, it seems that they were using the ban as part of Canaanite religion when they would fight some sort of religious warfare. Um, so that's another thing that it does have an antecedent in it. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the third hour podcast coming in next week when we'll finish Joshua. Thank you for joining us. This was the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at the thirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.